I got my first journal as a gift at the beginning of my fifth grade year. My fourth grade teacher, Alice Rubin, gave it to me at the beginning of the new school year. The first entry is dated September 17th, which was just over two weeks since my grandmother, my mother's mom, had died at our kitchen table. When Mrs. Rubin gave me the journal, she said something like, sometimes writing helps. I've been a journaler ever since. I am now in my 32nd volume. After that first, after the first 10 journals or so, I switched from a flower cloth-bound version to a large hardback sketchbook. I wonder if or when I would have started if Mrs. Rubin hadn't given the book to me or if my grandmother hadn't died. There have been times when it was a near daily practice for me and also long stretches where I didn't write at all. There are times when I feel the desire to write, like a hunger almost, an urge that needles me on. I itch to get it down. From the very first journal, from the very first page, I wondered if anyone else would read it. In fifth grade, I was explicit about that. I wonder if someone will find this and turn it into a book. But I was also clear in the second sentence that I ever wrote in any journal that I hoped not. As I've gotten older, I have gotten embarrassed by that secret question of whether someone might ever read it. But now, still, God, I hope not. It's just mostly one outrageous crush after another and such a revealing and embarrassing and accurate picture of who I am when I'm alone. I've even gotten sometimes, if not embarrassed by it, and curious about the value of journaling at all. Like, is there any value to journaling? Often, when I get that itch to write, it's just about wanting to write down what happened with as much detail as I have time to capture, to remember what the other person said, to record what I felt and what I was left wondering about. When I'm critical of the urge to write, it takes the form of wondering if I'm just trying to make a map the size of the world, capturing in as much detail as possible a thing that already exists and happened. When I'm critical of the urge, sometimes I wonder if it's just navel-gazing. I get the urge to write when something has happened, some big event in my life, or something small but that um, causes ripples in me for whatever reason. And the practice of writing does a number of things in me. It focuses me on the page in front of me. It stills me into a chair by the front window in my apartment. It offers me reflection, like an embarrassing crush-filled version of the Ignatian Examine. What was the day like? Who did I see? What emotions did I feel? What is one emotion I can settle into and even pray from? Journaling offers me the chance to make meaning of my life, to look for an arc and a shape, to notice changes, to hang on to revelations. But I often feel like I'm writing the same emotions, having the same revelations, asking the same questions that I've been doing since I was a kid. The journals are written in the moment, in the thick of things. It's almost always been true that in times of grief or upheaval, I write more, so that there are long places, long stretches where my journals read like a string of personal crises from one anxious moment to the next, trying to figure it out as I go. Our scripture for today is a favorite of mine, a person who is smack dab in the middle of an anxious moment, Jacob in Genesis 28. And we're dropping right into the middle of his anxious moment when he is fleeing for his life. Jacob's the one with the twin, Esau, Jacob of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fame. But when we meet him in this reading, he's not a patriarch. 
He's a scam artist who tricked his dad out of a very valuable blessing. He tricked his musclehead brother out of his birthright. And he's fleeing for his life while the sun sets, having thrown his things together and fled from home when his mother hissed at him, your brother is going to kill you. He left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He was still in between. He was nowhere in particular when it started to get dark. And our reading starts like this. Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. If you read stories of who Jacob had been, what he'd done up to this point, he's very consistent. From the moment he was born, basically, his character had been a parent. If you spent any time with infants, you can attest to the way this can be true. When they're still so little, they can have so much personality that's often borne out later in the people they become. They're stubborn or easygoing or funny or pensive. Jacob, from the beginning, had always been a homebody. He stayed close to the tents and cooked with his mother. He was her favorite. He wasn't outdoorsy. He wasn't impulsive. He didn't rock the boat. He wasn't going to marry some foreign women, unlike some twins we could name, Esau. Jacob was a planner. More than that, he was a schemer. He bided his time, and he made his plans, and he tricked his brother and father, and it had finally, finally caught up with him. And now, abruptly, he was on the run. Now the homebody is getting ready to bed down under the stars. Now the planner had no idea what was next. And he wasn't at all in the clear. In fact, as far as he knew, both then and for years to come, his brother Esau was hunting him down with the intention of taking his life. Jacob went to sleep that night between Beersheba and Haran, with the sense that whatever the new reality was, it wasn't going to be resolved anytime soon. It was going to last a while. Shaken, shaky, shaking, maybe. He used what he had for a pillow and somehow managed to go to sleep. And the reading goes on. He dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And God stood beside him and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, God of Isaac. Know that I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Jacob woke up from sleep and said, Surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it. I want to interrupt to say, it's not like Jacob has not known about God until now. It's not like he hadn't heard about the nearness and presence of God. By this point in his life, Jacob had heard a lot about God. His parents and his grandparents had both had remarkable experiences with God, like one-on-one -on -one experiences and miracles and crazy tests of faith. So the idea that God could be in the place that he was, the idea that God was with him, I mean, that's an idea he'd heard. He'd heard it hashed over a few times, like family stories that get told and retold. Yeah, yeah, Grandpa, the one about you almost sacrificing Dad until the ram showed up. They have this string of stories, but it wasn't until this thing happened to Jacob that he had his revelation. God is in this place, and I didn't know it. When Jacob woke up from the dream after his revelation, like the next morning, actually, when Jacob woke up from the dream after his revelation, he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. 
Jacob rose early the next morning, and he took that stone that he put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I will go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Jacob was still in the thick of things, and he wanted to hang on to the revelation he'd had, wanted to get it down, set it in stone, wanted to make meaning out of it. Sure, maybe he'd come to the realization late that God was with him and had been all along, but lots of meaning is in retrospect. Meaning-making, I mean. That's one of the things that journaling teaches me. Sometimes a change has been happening, and I didn't know it. Sometimes the reiteration of what can feel like the same emotions, the same revelations, the same questions, it turns out to be something quite different than I was expecting. But usually at the time it was happening, in the thick of things, I'd never have been able to see it for what it was. Right now there is a lot of meaning making going on. Right while we're on the upswing of the bell curve of this pandemic. Something has happened to us. Something is happening to us. Up to this point, yes, we've known that things can happen. We've heard about things happening. But here we are, in between what was and what will come next, whatever that is, whenever it is. And here we are with the sense that whatever the new reality is and will be, what comes after that, it's going to last a while. So what, what does it mean? Who's to blame? What, and, and this I think is some dangerous meaning making, what silver linings are there? I mean, for people with a safety net, maybe they're learning a different pace of life. For people with an eye on the November elections, maybe it looks like a hoped-for change of administration. For people who've been sounding the warning bell about climate change or capitalism or our healthcare system, it's a lesson and a chance to reform. It is, I think, too soon. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're anxious. We are shaken, shaky, shaking maybe. It is hard to sleep. It's too soon to know what any of this will mean practically, maybe spiritually, for us as a country and global community. I think it's always going to be too soon to talk about silver linings, certainly as long as there are people alive to remember lost livelihoods and lost loved ones. Abruptly, our lives have changed. We are all, like it or not, suddenly homebodies. It's difficult, it's nearly impossible to plan anything. And any meaning that will emerge, it's all ahead of us. After Jacob had the dream, many other things happened to him. He was still a trickster. He got married twice. He became a father 12 times. He managed to enrage a whole other family, his in-laws. He made other stone markers to capture what happened to him. He wrestled with God. He got a new name. Who he would be, what he was to become, how that would happen. The night he had his dream, it was all way out ahead of him. When my grandmother died at the kitchen table, the grief, the toll on my family, as with any grief you have known, it spilled over the next years. What was to come, all the good and bad, was still way out ahead of us. And we, I mean we now, 
We're in the thick of things. You may not be a writer or a journaler, I don't know. You may be a writer, but abruptly find yourself both working and homeschooling your kids and have no time. The writing is not the point. The point is that we are in between here and there. It's an anxious part of the bell curve, an anxious part of the journey. Before rushing and trying to make meaning, wait. Notice what is happening in you, what is being stirred up. Consider praying the examined. Practically speaking, I'll share the link. But know that even if it's just based on stories that you've heard, that God is with you. And please remember that even once Jacob knew that, that God was with him, he didn't feel that much better. He didn't feel like it was all going to be okay. He was, in fact, afraid. But with all the meaning that was ever going to be made still way out ahead of him, he made for himself a sign set in stone of what he had found out. And then he asked God for the basics. Food, clothing, for protection, so that he could be again with his loved ones in peace. It's not a bad way to pray. In fact, I pray it for you, that you have at least the basics, that God will keep you, and that we will be together again soon. Amen.